Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Wolfgang Klebel on February 1, 2022. Wolfgang was born in Vienna, Austria, shortly before World War II. He became a Catholic priest, studying at the best Catholic universities in Rome and Austria. Eventually, however, after moving to California, he left the priesthood and became a psychologist treating mental disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder. His work included a women's prison run by the state of California. He's the owner of City of the Heart Psychological Services. He recently published a book called The Human Heart, One and Undivided, which we talk about in the interview. I started the interview by asking Wolfgang where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I was born in Vienna and we lived at the time on the outskirts of Vienna, my family. My parents and my, my nine brothers and sisters. My parents were both uh, in the Catholic youth movement and were very religious and very much con- in the Catholic Church. Even so, they uh, were both, especially my father, very open to new things. For example, my, he had good friends with the Protestant minister and so forth. It was not any, any narrow-minded Catholic. We were very open-minded, you can say. But very active. We went to church every Sunday and followed their rules and went to confession and so forth as children. When I finished my, uh, it's called, here it's called high school in America, in Europe, it's called different. But when I finished, I went to the university first, I studied a few semesters, I think one or two semesters, architecture. My father was an architect and worked for the government, working with church, with hospitals and schools. I then got the vocation to, to join a monastery. So you took your religious upbringing very seriously so that you yes. wanted to devote yourself to the ministry of the Catholic faith? I was visiting a friend of ours, a friendly family, and it was a Sunday which was my friend and he was my age. And an abbot from a monastery came to this family. He knows the father of the family, and he tried to talk the son into joining the monastery. But I was only sitting by, and I heard him talk, and he talked to me. And I really felt that was not from him, that was really from Christ, the invitation. In olden days, I probably would have seen an angel or something, we don't mm-hmm. see that anymore, but I still heard a voice telling me this is what we should do. Very clearly and very definitely. A week later, so I called the Abbey and they said how to get there, and I got there and became a priest order, like in monk. And how old were you, Wolfgang, when you? Probably 21. Mm-hmm. I had studied one year architecture following my father's profession. And so, how did your parents feel about you changing to going to the priesthood? They were very surprised. They didn't expect it, but uh, I think they were pleased, especially my mother. What was it like joining the priesthood? I joined a monastery 
which is a big building and all that's very different from what you live in a regular house. The monastery life, I don't know if you know much about it. We have we pray the whole of the Old Testament every week in communal prayer. We went to university, studied theology, and then became priests, and then we were doing church ministry in different parishes which belong to the monastery. I was studying in, first in the university in Rome, in Italy. That's the Papal University Gregoriana where I studied, where all the bishops sent their candidates, and most of those people who studied there become later bishops and so forth. And it was a very good school. And then from there, I went later on in the university in Austria. In Austria, even the state universities have a theological faculty for theology, for philosophy, for medicine. These four faculties, they still exist that way. And so I studied then in some very famous theologian. One of them, Karl Rahner, was actually a very important member of the Vatican I Council. So I had a very good theological education there. And then after your studies at the University yeah, of Austria, was, what happened? When I became a priest, I was a, an assistant priest in a, one of the famous parishes in Vienna, the Karlskirche, which is a, in the inner city, very, very famous building, and was there for a few years. And then I became the prior, just the second after the abbot in the monastery. Where, where I was teaching the new candidates for our monastery. And one time, for example, I was delegate from our abbey to the general chapter of our order. That was under Pope John XXIII. But before that, in the house where we lived, I was the youngest of all the candidates. And so I had the, had the privilege to bring a candle to the Pope Pius XII, and kneel down and kiss his hand. There was a picture taken, and I brought it to my mother, and she probably showed it to everybody mm-hmm. she knew. She was very pleased about that. Were you ever in charge of a Catholic chapel or church? Yes, after I was the prior there, then I was sent out to be the parish priest of a little town. Actually, it's a town from the 13th century, so I was there for a few years. And so how long were you a priest? I think five years or so. What happened at that five-year point? So you want to know why I left the priesthood, yeah? Yeah. That's a good question. Actually, I I met a, a lady in our parish. She was married and had two children. We started an affair. Mm. And that was so horrible for me. You know, when as a priest and we betray your vow, you know, mm-hmm. you stay on the pulpit and preach the people and you're a liar. It's very horrible for me. Yeah. So that's why I left the area and went to America. See, here in America, in Orange County here, they had a small group of priests from a Hungarian. Our order was the Norbertine Fathers in English. And they asked for help. And so I volunteered and we came here. To America. Okay, so were you still in the priesthood when you came to America? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When you had this affair, was that in Europe? That was in Europe. And so you left this woman with two children and went to the United yeah. States. So you were asked to come to the United States to help by the Catholic Church. 
I volunteered somebody was supposed to go there and I went there again. And then here I met another lady and this time I left the priesthood before I got involved with her. And that was when I started studying psychology. And there was an interesting experience to me. I was sitting still in the monastery there and I decided to leave. And I had a, developed a horrible headache, thinking that now when you leave, you leave everything. You leave your priesthood, you leave your family, you leave your country, you leave your church, everything is gone. And I had a headache as if my whole brain was scrambled up and I've never had a headache like this before. And then I thought myself, what's important, you will never lose. And the headache was gone. And I decided to leave. Why did you choose psychology? Even when I was in Vienna before, I was interested in psychology. So that was my, my next step because it's interesting enough, I told the lady before I was in serious with her, I told her that I'm interested and so she invited me to Chapman University and we enrolled there and all that. And then when I left her, naturally I finished the study and made a master's degree in psychology there. And then I went to Fuller Seminary, they had a psychology degree. The difference was you had to take some theology too when you do the psychology. So it was a religious related university here in Pasadena. So that was a school. For me, it was interesting because those people, even the psychologists, had to take a few basic theological classes. For me, that was easy. I had a better theological education than the, than the professors had, actually. So I studied psychology then here in Fuller Seminary and eventually graduated with a doctorate and got a license to do psychology. What was your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith, Wolfgang? When I was here in America and was had left the priesthood, I wanted to find a church, and I couldn't. I went to different Protestant denominations, went to their sermons and so forth. They were all fine, but it was not the same I had before in the Catholic Church. For me, it wasn't a full experience. But why couldn't you stay in the Catholic Church and go to church? with? Well, the... When you leave the priesthood, you are excommunicated. What? Yes. Sure, you break the vow to God, so you are excommunicated. I never so knew I that. Could... They did allow priests, but in order to get a dispensation from the church to leave the priesthood, I would have to prove by a psychologist or psychiatrist that when I made the vow, I was not really fully functional and many do that you know and you can find somebody who says that but i felt that wouldn't be honest if i say that because i fully know what i was doing there's no question so i didn't want to lie to get a dispensation from the book so you were looking around so i was looking around to find another religious home and i couldn't find it my first marriage break up and then I got involved with another lady. She was a Baha'i and told me about the faith. Then she invited me one time with a Baha'i who had some experience and who had been a Catholic before. And he explained to me why I should become a Baha'i. And I said to him, I don't need to that. In the Catholic Church, it's all there. There's nothing new in the Baha'i faith. And in addition, he gave me a book of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. He lived in the 19th century. 
And the book was about the Catholic and Muslim religion because Bahá'u'lláh was from the Islam. He was in Tehran, in Bursa. And I felt, yeah, he is an interesting man. He's a very good man, but he doesn't understand the Catholic Church at all. And then I told him, I said, it's okay. And he said to me, this young man, he said to me, you know, it doesn't matter if you are a good Catholic, a good Christian, that's as good as being a good Baha'i. And it's as difficult anyway. But my problem was I wasn't a good Catholic, obviously. So you thought you weren't a good Catholic because you broke your vow? Yeah, I broke my vow and I couldn't participate in the Catholic Church. Then I went to a fireside. You know, the Baha'is have firesides where they explain the faith to people who are interested. And I went to that several times. And one time there was a lady from India. She was a high functioning in the United Nations somewhere. And she talked about Baha'u'llah and the faith. And she said something. She said, you know, she must have known that I'm a doctor. Somebody must have told her that, I think. When you want to get a doctorate, you walk around the university and make a decision for the rest of your life. You never get there. You have to go in and sign up and figure it out. And driving home from there, I decided that I have to go in in the Baha'i and figure it out. And they called the presenter and said, please, I want to become a Baha'i. I had not really studied the Baha'i very well before that. I just know it was the right thing. Like I know it was the right thing to become a priest. It was the right thing for me to become a Baha'i. So what was it about the Baha'i faith that attracted you to want to be a part of it? This lady was presenting the life of Baha'u'llah better than most people do. And so when I heard about what Baha'u'llah went through, I realized that that's a serious issue. I remember, for example, when I went to the first Baha'i meeting, the Baha'is believe in Baha'u'llah like the Christians believe in Christ. And exactly that feeling, I had the same feeling. My mother, for example, when she heard I'm, I'm not a Catholic anymore, she was very disturbed, very upset. Just before she died, a few months before, I visited her in Austria, and she asked me, do you believe in Jesus? I said to her, yes, I believe in Jesus as much as I did before that, as Baha'i, you have to believe in all the prophets of God, from Moses and Zarathustra and Buddha and Krishna and Mohammed and so forth. All those prophets in the Baha'i faith are one, and you cannot believe in only one and not in the other. That's why the Baha'i faith believes that all religions should be one, because all their prophets come from the same one God and bring basically the same message adjusted to the time when they appear. So that feeling was very strong in myself, and I felt about that. That's the only solution to answer the question, why are there so many religions in this world? Basically, they are separate religions because what men do, not what God did. God sent the same prophet, or a similar prophet, with the same message to the different people in different times. And in every religion, most of the time, the priest and not the simple believer make it, that's the end of it. Now we are finished, we don't need any relation of God anymore. The Catholics believe that Moses was a prophet from God. And the Jews are actually believing in the same God than the Christian do, right? Mm-hmm. But now we don't need anybody else. There is no next one. So there was Christ and there was Moses, but now we don't need anybody. And Baha'is believe. Every 500 to 1,000 years comes a new prophet 
giving the same message to a new people, and he has to talk differently because the people are, think differently. But he brings basically the same message. That's what Baha'u'llah said, that all prophets are actually one in the same, in their prophet, in their message. Wolfgang, you grew up in a very Christ-centric, Jesus-centric orientation through yes. childhood, young adulthood, through your work with the priesthood. Was there any initial reaction from you that there could actually be another, what Baha'is call a manifestation of God, beside Jesus? Uh, no, I didn't expect anything. See, when I studied in Rome, I remember we had one professor, a Jesuit, who tried to figure out that all the prophets before Christ were leading to Christ. I mean, we know about Moses, that's for obvious, because the Messiah, Moses predicted, he said, I will send you a prophet like me. The Christian believe Christ, he said, the Jews still wait for that. So in a sense, that process between Moses and Christ is just expanded to all the founders of the major religion. The Christian believe in that. So who says there wasn't before Moses somebody who presented the same religion of God? And then the next step is, why shouldn't there be one after Christ? Because the Jews believe the Messiah hasn't come yet. As a matter of fact, all major religions believe that there will either the same prophet come back, like Christ said, he will come back again, or another prophet like him come back. Like Moses said, a prophet like me I will send to you. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. Krishna said that when, when the religion falls apart, I will come back. And Buddha said there will be another Buddha coming. So every one of the major founders of religion prophesies there will be another like him coming later to fix things up and make renew the religion. So that's historically true. Every relation believes we are the last one. We don't need anybody. <laughs> that is a question of the leader of the religion. They don't want to be replaced, obviously. So the, the high priest didn't want to be replaced by Jesus, right? So that's where they killed Jesus. Every new prophet comes with a heart of resistance from the old religion. But that's not the religion of God. That is a human side of it. As you were growing up and as you were a priest in the Catholic Church, I'm sure you had heard of Islam. I'm wondering if you had at all developed any kind of prejudice against Islam and then realizing that the Baha'i faith recognized Muhammad as a prophet of God, if that was any kind of challenge for you as well. Yeah, you have to realize Vienna was almost captured by Islam. Two times Vienna, the city where I grew up, was besieged by the Turks. They were following Muhammad. Islam at then had all the Balkan occupied and Hungary. And they were just wanting to take over whole Europe. And our city, Vienna, was defensing. Did not let that happen. So in Vienna, certainly, there is not a very good thinking about Muslims in general in the culture, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had some prejudices about it. So I would say that when I became a Baha'i, in the beginning, I had to study that. I had to figure out how that works. Why Muhammad was a good prophet, and I read some books about it, and there are some good 
books about Britain. Karen Armstrong once I liked that book very much. When mm-hmm. I became a Baha'i, it was not. Wolfgang, you've written a number of papers on the Baha'i faith for Lights of Irfan. What is Lights of Irfan? On Lights of Irfan, there was somebody that donated some money and they developed a group of scholarly people, Baha'i people, and it meets in here in Bosch, California. It meets on the East Coast every year. There is one meeting in Germany and one meeting in Italy. So there are four meetings every year. The presentations are printed in the magazine Rights of Irfan. So this is a scholarly meeting. It's not very big, maybe 50 or 60 or 80 people. But we exchange ideas and talk about it and present papers. I talked to one of those people who are going to those meetings that I'm interested in one topic because I found that Teilhard Stechert and the French Jesuit who wrote many papers and stopped by the Pope to publish anything. When he died, his sister had all the papers and published them. There was a big movement in the Catholic Church reading those papers and being surprised how modern his ideas were. And when I compared his ideas with Baha'u'llah and the Bab, the predecessor of Baha'u'llah, and Baha'u'llah's son, Abdul Baha'u wrote a lot about the Baha'is. He was an interpreter of his father's writings. And there are many topics which are very similar. And I have a whole list in that presentation about the similarities. I quote Baha'u'llah and I quote Dalat Shadayim back and forth. And that was my first paper. After this first paper, one day I found out there is a very prolific writer, philosophical and psychological writer, Ken Wilber. He's very much known. He wrote a book about integral psychology. And I was interested because what does he integrate? What does he put together? So I bought his book and read it. And there is a, a scheme in him where he says there are four principles in human life. The inside and the outside, the individual and the collective. And he put it in a quadrant and he puts his whole philosophy in that kind of scheme. And when I read that, I was said, oh, that's interesting. That fits some of the Baha'i thinking. And I put some Baha'i terms in there. And that was in the evening, and I went to bed, and on my nightstand I had the book of Baha'u'llah, the mystical book about the four and the seven valleys. That was a book which is praised for its spiritual and mystical meaning. And I opened that book, and I read Baha'u'llah saying the same thing Ken Wilber said. I can quote it to you. And thus, firstness and lastness. Outwardness and inwardness are, in the sense referred to, true of thyself, that in these four states conferred upon you, thou shouldest comprehend the four divine states. So Baha'u'llah, who lived about almost 100 years before Wilber wrote that, this was an experience I had only once in my life. I have to say it was an ecstatic and mystical experience. I was totally concentrated. I forgot about anything. I didn't feel or hear anything. I was in this idea. How come Baha'u'llah said it and now Wilber finds it too? Actually, that state lasted almost for three weeks. Whenever I went back to the book, I read it again and again and studied all that. It's very intensive for me. 
and presented a paper about that. Since then, I have presented a paper every year in those colloquiums, about 12 papers now, and they were not all literally based on the sentence, but that was behind all of these four concepts, according principles, are very important to me for my thinking. That explains to me the Baha'i face and explains to me the human psychology, because we all are in those aspects. See, we all have outside body and an inside spirit. We all are coming from somewhere, so we are not the first, we are the last. Paolo says, for my father, I am the last, and for my son, I am the first. So first and last mean where I come from, an individual, what I develop and add to that. This is the whole human structure of our, the human psychology in these four sentences. We have an animal body and a spiritual reason. And the other side is individual and collective. And what's so important to understand that is that those four things cannot be seen in isolation. If there wasn't the last, there wouldn't be a first. If there wasn't an inward, there wouldn't be an outward. So they are together. That's what people in America forget. They say, I'm the captain of my ship. Yeah, that's true. But who built the ship? And who taught you how to run a ship? Right? So we cannot do anything unless we depend on the culture, on the collective, where we come from. So whatever a human being does, and I found this all in psychology later when I studied psychology, has to do both. For example, there is a theory which says our self is not invented by me. Our self is a reflection of my relationship to others. So when the child grows up and there's a mother and a father and brothers, sisters and later teachers, all those people relate to the child and the child relates to them. That's what the child knows he is. Around the age of 12, those different relationships come together and now the child knows I am me. Before that, me is, is not independent yet. For example, people know about multiple personalities where they are more than oneself, that they abuse to cause that. These are children who are tortured or abused sexually or physically. They cannot put those different relationships together into oneself, so they put each one of them in a separate self. That's why they have different selves. And only one can be out, so to speak, can can move the body, the other ones have to be inside. But they change from one to the other. That's why I'm studying multiple personalities. And I had many patients of that kind because I recognize them. Most therapists don't recognize those people. I recognize them and then I learn from them and help them. But what's important is that I am a self, not because of myself, but because of others. So I'm always the last from others to become the first for myself. And that's what Baha'u'llah said. And the more I go on through all those years studying that, the more this sentence of Baha'u'llah comes clear. And what's another issue? The more other modern thinkers contribute to that. For example, Niels Bohr, the atomic physicist, he talks about that Everything in the world has two sides, which you cannot understand together. Like light is either a particle or a wave, depending on how we look at it. So I decide if I see one side or the other side, but both sides cannot be at the same time visible or understood. This is the same thing first and last, inside and outside. 
you cannot understand one without understanding the other. But they are never the same. Dependency on the culture and on your parents is always different from what you do. But one could not happen without the other. So there are many things in life like this. A parent has to be just with his child and has to love the child. The judge of the child, you did something wrong, I punish you, and I love you. In our life, we find always a balance if the life is good. If we do much on one side or too much on the other side, then it breaks apart. But the balance of these oppositions makes life. I used other writers to understand the concept of Baha'u'llah. Which brings me to another topic, which is the idea that science and religion, according to the Baha'i faith, should be in harmony. They're not always, they fight each other and all that, but basically both try to find the truth. And since there's only one truth, they should always work together. And in my writings, I put that together, those scientific findings of a philosopher, of a physicist, and so forth, I see them in the word Baha'u'llah, and you have to realize Baha'u'llah lived 100 years before them. So he said it already, and then later on those people detected it again. It's the truth and it's reality. Baha'u'llah says that clearly that all these new things which happened in the last century has been a result of the revelation of Baha'u'llah. So every prophet like Jesus changed the Roman Empire 100 years later. This is so much a power given from God into the world that the whole culture changes. And that's what Baha'u'llah predicts, that we will have a lot of new sciences. And obviously quantum physics is very new science. So now I like to apply that on psychology. I'm writing a book on that. Wolfgang, one of the articles that you wrote for the Lights of Irfan is called Baha'u'llah's Most Sublime Vision. What is Baha'u'llah's most sublime vision? Baha'u'llah says many things about that. He says that if you search and find faith, then you get a new eye, a new ear, a new heart, and a new brain. This new organ, so to speak, you see in a different way. And that's the Baha'u'llah's sublime vision. There's another point that Baha'u'llah says is very important. He says we have to forget all our old stuff. All what we learned before, we should forget. And I actually did that. I remember one of the meetings we had in the Baha'i when I was a new Baha'i. Somebody asked me a simple theological Christian question. I couldn't answer it. I should know that, but I didn't. But later on, it comes back once you understand the Baha'i faith, and it fits back. You have to reorganize your whole thinking. And there is a good thing about that. See, when you think in the Baha'i faith, it's modern. There's no conflict with science and Baha'i faith when you read this. When you think in the Christian faith, Christ talked to people 2,000 years ago. Obviously, they couldn't understand what we understand. They didn't know what we know. He couldn't even tell them that there are people in America because nobody knows that there is in America. You recently published The Human Heart, One and Undivided. What inspired you to write this book? There is another book written, which I read, where a quantum physicist describes his youth when he fell in love with a girl, and then she dies on cancer before they get serious. 
In this book, he writes one chapter about the girl. He asks, where is she now? That's his question. And one chapter about quantum physics and has to explain how there are some answers in quantum physics why a life after death is possible. And I like that style of that book and I wrote a similar book. I describe in that book, my 10 events changed my life. When I first recognized God, when I was four years old, we were in the church, probably eight kids, be standing like the organ pipes next to our parents in the middle of the church. It was a little chapel, it wasn't a big church. We were standing in the middle. And I remember vividly that the priest did something. I don't remember what he did. And my father nailed town. And I understood there is something more than my father in this world, something higher, more powerful. That was my first understanding of God. And by the way, I read now in a, a psychoanalyst writing a book about the God experience and said that every child experiences something like that. That's the origin of experience of religion or of God. And I described it in my book. The other incidences I describe when I had my first experience, I want to become a priest. And then when I leave the priesthood, there are good and bad experiences. And I line it up with a book of Baha'u'llah in the Seven Valleys, where he had a story about a man who is in love and his love is not there. And he is totally disturbed and depressed and finally runs out of the house and runs. And some watchmen, some policemen come and pursue him. So he runs away from them, comes to a big wall, jumps over the wall, and lo and behold, his beloved lady is there. So I describe my life in this kind of big land. I was going back and forth and did all kinds of things, but eventually I found the Baha'i faith okay. in the same way. These are all spiritual experiences and they are hard to describe. When you have a spiritual experience, you cannot simply describe it. It's difficult to describe a dream. You cannot describe them either because spiritual experiences are in the heart and so are dreams. There's a different language of the heart. So every other chapter in my book is about the heart, what I learned about the heart in that process. So you have two. You have a biography of my life and you have ideography and idea about my ideas about this human heart in that book. I talked about the heart in a fireside and the lady came to me afterwards and said, Doctor, you have changed my life. I said, how did I do that? She said, yeah, I always wanted to lose weight and never could. I forgot I have to do it with my heart. I write about those things in my book, about the heart and what we learn about the heart. People don't realize that the heart is not only pumping blood, the heart has a whole nervous system. There is now an institute studying that, some practical applications of that, how you can relax and feel better. The heart has perception, the heart has a memory, and the heart makes decisions, independent of the brain. And then we have to figure out, the heart wants this, the brain wants that, we have to figure out where we go. That's our free will decides. And everybody experiences that, like when you fall in love, for example. Your brain and your parents very often don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want readers to take away from reading The Human Heart? I want them to look in their own heart and find out how they make decisions and how they can make better, better decisions when they follow their heart than when they follow their mind or their, their wishes or their sexual interests or whatever. Baha'u'llah says in many places that the revelation of God is in your heart. 
Solving your brain. Wolfgang, would you like to read an excerpt from The Human Heart? Yeah, let me read a passage from Becoming a Baha'i at age 61. Since I could not return to the, in the Catholic Church, I looked into other Christian churches to find a spiritual home. I attended services in Presbyterian, Methodist, Unitarian churches. I became friends with an Anglican priest and attended his church. All of them gave me the message of Christ, but I could never find in them what I had before in the Catholic Church. I was homeless and seeking still running here and there. And that wretched man cried from his heart and ran here and there. His feet carried him on, that hapless one bleeding with the arrow of love with his heart lamented. Then he came to a garden and with untold pain and trouble, he saw that it was very high. Forgetting his life, he threw himself down in the garden. Bahá'u'lláh describes the flight of the seeker as running here and there, seeking without purpose and not knowing where to go so that his heart lamented. That was me at that time, looking into all the different religions and never finding what I was seeking. Actually, I did not know what I was seeking. It was hidden, as behind the wall, and I had no direction. I was chased by my watchmen, who were, so to speak, my desires and wishes, my obligations as a psychologist, and my memories of having been a priest in the Catholic Church. Even being married did not end the search. Marital relationships had not worked out. My wives had left me and my marriage had ended at that time in divorce. All of that prevented me from finding what my heart was seeking, but unknowingly brought me towards the wall of decision which I have to plan. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That's an interesting thing that you read, Wolfgang, about whatever you had in the Catholic Church, as you were looking, you couldn't find it. What was it in the Catholic Church that you had that you kept not being able to find when you were going from church to church in your search? I would call it a spiritual home. Part of my life growing up was the Catholic Church. So it was part of the culture and uh, what we did and what we believed and what we talked about. But that I had lost when I left the church. And then I found back in the Baha'i face because it's the same home, basically. That's what the Baha'is believe, that every real religion is the same. So the religion changes, the believers in Christ are the same than the believers in Baha'u'llah or in any other manifestation. And this is true. If you think about the priests and the ministry classes, they are different. But if you take a simple believer in a Catholic church, in a Protestant church, in Muslim, in Hindu, they all do the same thing. They try to do an honest life. They help their family. They help the poor. They do good works. They have the same path to God. By the way, 
There is no other word in our religion. Even the word God is not used in the Buddhist religion, but all talk about the right path or the path of God. Christ says, I am the way, I am the path. So every religion is a way to God. That's the only thing all religions have in common. Wolfgang, I understand you have another book you're working on. Can you tell us about this? Yeah. See, I believe this sentence of Bahara, which I read to you about inwardness and outwardness first and last, is a very important issue about understanding the human psychology. That's what makes a human being that we have these two sides, this physical part and the spiritual inside. Depending on what we learn from our parents, from our culture, and then produce something on our own, progress in the world, do something with our gifts we get. So we get a gift and we have to do something with it. If we don't do, then we are failed. And they come to me as a psychologist, because when that fails, many other things fail. People get depressed, they get anxious, they get sick because they don't have a goal. See, depression, for example, is the most common mental illness, and people are depressed because they don't know why they were here and what they were supposed to do. If you're depressed, everything gets lost. Bahá'u'lláh says, and he has always in four. This one is inward, outward, first and last. He has another four, which is movement and stillness, purpose and will. And those four are in the Bible, the four princes or four kings in one country. So there are four principles who rule a country. Originally means four principles together. So those four principles together make the human life. And then applied it in understanding psychology, mental illness. For schizophrenia, distinction between those four principles breaks down. So the schizophrenic thinks something, but he hears it as a voice from the outside. When he's afraid, he projects his ideas into the world outside, and the world becomes something different for him. And so he has lost this kind of balance between those four. From my experience with multiple personalities, I get the idea of the self. And the self is not a thing. The self is how we understand ourselves. And we learned it from others, and when it's disturbed, then we have problems here too. Then I apply that in therapy. And as a matter of fact, I have in my therapy, especially with depressed people, discussed those issues, how he balances his life out. And I use those four principles and talk with people about that. And it's helpful. So I want to start it. I'm not developing it because I don't have the time. I'm already 89 years old, so I don't have many years. I hope somebody will pick up and go on with it and develop it to a real full-fledged psychology system, which would be different from anything we have seen before. And it's based on these four words of Bahá'u'lláh. I understand you are owner of City of the Heart Psychological Services. Tell us about what may be different about your work in psychology. See, when I learned psychology, even so I learned it in a, in a seminary, in a theological seminary. Religion at that time was not part of psychology. You could not write, you couldn't talk about it, and so forth. Now this has changed, and some of our professors in, in my school have worked on that. 
that even the American Psychological Society has edited a book about spirituality and therapy and teaches therapists how to deal with a Catholic or a Jew or a Muslim or whatever that talks about a lot of racial and spirituality. There are several books from the American Psychological Association written about that and there are other books. So now it is suddenly religion becomes part of psychology under the name of spirituality usually. There is some place before because when I, for example, was just finished with my license, I went to a job in Central California City. I think it was Fresno or something. The guy told me, we have a problem here. This is a very religious town. We have so many churches here. And the psychologists talk bad about churches. They say, forget about religion. He wanted me to come there to make the, the psychologists more accepting of the culture of this religion, in terms of religion, and of this church, the city. I didn't get the job because I was not long enough a psychologist, but it would have been a challenging thing. So psychologists and psychiatry even more so was not in, at all involved with religion. And that has changed already now. So now you can talk about it. I talk about a lot about spiritual issues. I believe, for example, there is what you call a spiritual depression. When people do not know why they are here in this world, what they should do with themselves, how to find any meaningful thing in this world. There are many people like this. For example, a lady in prison came to me and said, Doctor, prison is so boring, there is nothing happening here. And I don't know what to do with myself. I asked her, have you ever tried to help anybody? Because we had in prison, I developed a system or a group, we called them peer helpers. We hired six prisoners, which are life sentence, long-term prisoners. And they were all good people at that point. And we trained them to deal with our patients. So when we had a patient, we could refer him to one of those ladies and she could talk to them all day long. I can only talk half an hour with the patient, right? They could talk and help them the whole day. So very often, especially suicide and other issues like this, it was a big help that we could let them help them. So that's one of the ideas I did in that prison. And one of the ladies said to me, you know, our prison is different since you came here. That was naturally a the best praise I ever got from anybody, that I could change that. Not prison, I didn't change anything in the prison, but somehow letting those people help and working with them together changed it. Well, Wolfgang, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to describe the work that you do, both in the writings and in your psychological work. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Wolfgang Klebel former Catholic priest, now psychologist and author of the book, The Human Heart, One and Undivided. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Yeah. 